We're going to be uh, in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to begin with, uh, with verse 13. This is the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter about, uh, between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I want to tell you, our world today, especially in this Western civilized world where money and things have become such a dominant part of our life, this story ought to resonate with us. It's, it's deep in, in its profundity. It's, 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 it ought, again, it ought to speak in volumes to the things that, uh, that we address. I, I will end by the, with this same statement. Most of us, uh, in our very natural mind, fear poverty, fear doing without. Rarely would any of us fear riches. But the warning that God is giving here, the warning that Jesus is giving here, is that there should be probably more concern about, about living in abundance than in living in lack. Now, you know, I'm not going to tell you that, that uh, by any means I would prefer to live without than with. But God is explaining something here through this parable and through, the, through Jesus that we desperately need to, to catch hold of. And I'll, hopefully by the time we get to the end of this, we'll have drawn that out and it will be very evident. God said to him, you fool. Now, very likely, this is a man who was probably very well respected. Uh, little doubt that he was very valued within the community. Just by the reality of his means, he would, because of the money he had, because of the prominence he had, he would be within that area, he would be important. But notice the heart of this rich man in this parable. When you go back to verse 18, notice what is said there. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down, what's next? My barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, over and over, there's this tremendous evidence of where, why would God call him a fool? Because where was the, where, who was at the center of his attention? Who was at the center of his own universe? Who was at the center of his own importance? 
everything was addressed to my. It was, it, it was the epitome of the, of the struggle with this word self. He wasn't a fool because he had money. He wasn't a fool because he had a good crop. He was a fool simply because of the importance that he had placed on my. He valued a life of earthly security and pleasure over the eternal value of a kingdom. Now, how many of us would say here, just by, by the raising of our hands, which do you value more? When we hold up here as Christians this option, do you value earthly things more or do you value heavenly and kingdom things more? We could, we could probably respond with the unity of a chorus that we would value the eternal things, the kingdom things of God, far more than the earthly. But if we were to do any degree of investigation about any of our lives, would we find that claim to be true? See, that's, the, that's, the, that's where the real story gets told. Do we, do we live daily under the, the value of a kingdom, or does our bank accounts, our savings accounts, where we spend our time, where we give our attention, tell the story that I'm certainly more focused on the reality of the kingdom, a heavenly and eternal kingdom, than the temporal, temporary things of this earth. Well, we, we give the right answer. We just don't display it, display it in how we live. I guarantee if you were to have asked this man, even with all of his claims about my goods, my barns, my crop, I talk to myself, I think to myself, with all of my, if I still were to ask him, which is more valuable, the things of God or the things of man, he probably would have answered the things of God. But there was no life to match it. And one of the things I hope we're learning, I hope we walk away with, the litmus test that Jesus gave about how we know we're saved is not what we typically use when somebody says, well, I'm not sure I'm saved, and a pastor says, well, uh, have you ever prayed? Did you ever say these words? Yes, I did. Well, then you're saved. That's the typical litmus test. The litmus test that Jesus gives when he says, narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to God. So he's saying, because there's an and in between, there's a conjunction and in between, he's saying it is this and this that lead to that life. He's saying the gate that you came through, the, the Holy Spirit convicted you that you were a sinner, the Holy Spirit brought you to the truth that there was a Savior, the Holy Spirit created the opportunity for you to make a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior is going to be a match to the life you live after where the Holy Spirit that brought conviction over here in the reality of death, also brings the reality that there is no life following without his love, without his truth, without his power, without his authority, and his working in us. So that the life, the gate we came through matches the life after. And that's one of the reasons why I've shared so many times that the Holy Spirit, about a year after I came here, five years, six years ago, I'd been here about, about a year when the Holy Spirit gave me this huge picture, this, it, was, it, it was just kind of one of those that makes your, your mind explode at the reality of it, of how many lost people there are sitting in church believing that they're saved. Having never had a true and real experience with Jesus Christ, but went through the motion 
that somebody told them this is how it happens and, and wonder then why the salvation doesn't match the life after. And, I, and I, when people come to my office and, and their lives are in turmoil, one of the things that I do, I may not do it the first time or the, maybe even the second, but eventually, very soon into the conversations, we're going to come to an understanding and assurance that they have been saved, that they have said yes and had an experience with Jesus Christ. Because I can't bring a supernatural reality into their story if, they're, if they have never accepted the, the, the means by which the supernatural reality comes. But the life that we live is designed in the spirit to match the decision that we made when we were saved. If there's a disconnect, it ought to at least raise a question about what's actually going on in me. So here's, you know, is this parable of this rich man who God now, Jesus, has called a fool. And here's something that is notoriously obvious within the Christian church. The false sense of value based on the enormity of earthly possessions has an amazing way of giving a person a sense of value about themselves and their relationship with God. How does that, how does that happen? Let me, let me say it again. The value that, the sense of value that comes because we have an abundance of earthly things, how often that gets correlated to the abundance of God's love for us because of the, the size of the blessing that we've received. And I want to tell you, there is nothing scriptural about that truth, about that, about that statement. It does not mean for a, for a second that, that we can't live in abundance according to those things of God. But again, there's a key found within this truth about how that is supposed to be done. What's that really supposed to look like? Because it's not about the size of the abundance or the size of the lack. But it's, it's so strange to me that in this world, how abundance correlates to God's favor and lack corresponds to God's lack of favor. That God's somehow disappointed in us or frustrated with us or something is wrong because I don't have what somebody else has. Well, it, it, it happens because we perpetuate it. But here's a, here's a truth that's for, for anyone who believes that the size of what I possess corresponds to the intimacy of my relationship. If you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse, beginning with verse 26, I use this passage in Hebrews pretty often, when, especially when people come and say, I don't understand what's, what's happening. I don't understand why these things are occurring. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's he telling us? He's saying, I am so determined. I am my, is God, my heart is so fixed on this truth, on this reality. I am so determined that my children will trust a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That I will shake everything I've ever created so that they will hang on to the things that can't be shaken. If, if you had an opportunity, and like, if, if you take that wind last night and we multiplied it times 10, and you're, and you're standing there, and, and over here there's a, there's a sapling of a tree to your left, and to your right there's a massive oak tree. Which one are you going to hang on to? I'm going to do my best to hang on to something that is immovable and unshakable. I am going to do my best to, to attach myself to something that will, be, at the end, will still be standing there. And God is saying, I am so determined. In this scripture, he says, he says I've done this before, but he says, I'm not only going to shake the things on the earth, I will shake the entirety of heaven. Everything that I spoke into creation, I will move if it will convince my children to trust a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So if I were to ask you, you know, if you, were, if you wanted to build a bridge between where you're standing today and what you desire the most. And, you know, we put over here on this list, I, I, I desire security. I desire peace. I desire love. I, des, I desire kindness and goodness. That's what I desire. And so you're standing here and we're going to build a bridge from where you are to those things that you desire the most, but that bridge requires that we put pillars underneath it. What is the most typical things, and I know I'm talking to an unusual group, but if we take ourselves out of church and into the world, and the, and the world wants security, and the world wants peace, and the world wants goodness, and they want recreation, they want fellowship, they want the things, what's the number one pillar that's going to stand here to hold up this bridge? Money. Money, number one. To hold that up. If I'm going to feel secure, I need money. If, I, if I'm going to live at peace, if I'm going to live in that, in, in that security, in that confidence, second pillar, I need, a th I need power. Position. Titles. I need education. Here, and, we, and we continue to build. What's, what's the commentary on every pillar standing under that bridge? What happens if there's an earthquake? All of them can fall. All of them can be taken away. Every one of them can be moved. So if that can happen and all those pillars can fall, and, and what happens to the bridge between where you are and the things that you desire the most? Suddenly the things you desire disappear because the bridge that I had fixed is now gone. So what, is, what are the pillars supposed to be? What, 
what do you have that no one can touch? Faith. Pillar number one. Faith. Now, we can, circumstances, may, you may let it shake, but I guarantee your faith is immovable, fixed between you and God. So faith, number one. What, what else would you add? To, what other pillars would you add to say, if I want security, if I want, if I want peace, if I want goodness in my life, what's got to hold up this bridge? What, what do we add to faith? Hope. Yeah, well, the Holy Spirit is the foundation of all of it. It's what's holding up the whole structure. How about grace? So I don't want to say grace. Grace is huge. Yeah. These are, these are immovable. Even your spiritual gifts, nobody can touch. The provision that God has spoken over you, no one can touch. Your identity, no one can touch. Those are pillars of, of, of reality that can hold this bridge up so that the things that we desire the most can become real to us. And not, and not based on the whims of men and women, because every one of those things that we name that the world's going to put under that bridge can be altered just like that. Can, can disappear in an instant. And then our world crashes and God says, I'll not, I, I want to get this picture right. I'll shake that bridge that the world builds with all those pillars under it, with money and power and position and titles and all those. I'll shake every one of them and I'll bring them to the ground. It, but, but what I hope is that for believers, they're ready there to prompt that bridge up with faith and grace and gifts and provision that I've established. Because I, God wants us to have these things. I mean, he's our loving father. He wants that to be our reality. But he says, you've got to build it on unshakable things. Not the temporal things of importance that the world, that the world has established. That's what he's, he's trying to tell us. The things that, if, when you value first the things of earth and let that correlate to how you think my favor is, I'll shake the things that the earth has established. So that you'll really lock on to a relationship with me of intimacy that... Uh, it's what, it's what really gives us the relationship that we want. He says in that scripture, he says, this night, this is what's going to happen this night. His life cut short speaks of the folly of building in an idea that cannot be sustained. And it's immediately vulnerable to somebody else. He's, he's talking about this, this is the night when what you thought was good, what you thought was secure is going to be shaken. And then he says, who shall, you know, who shall these things be? belong to after that who gets this stuff who gets that good crop who gets the bigger barns who gets all this man's goods on the night that his life is required of him who gets them this is a serious question who gets them I, I'm sorry his children so what, do, what happens when those goods get passed to his children? They either consume them or they draw the same conclusions that the father had and he brings the same, you know, because he didn't teach them, because he didn't give them the stability of an unshakable kingdom, he's going to pass to them in their inheritance the shakable one, 
so that they're going to be as vulnerable as he was because the, the, the kingdom that he should have been passing, the inheritance he should have been giving, he didn't give. The what? Yeah, yeah, the goods would consume the children, basically. Yeah. Would God take them? Mm -mm. First of all, he doesn't need them, but they weren't ever given to him. This was this, was this man's stuff. God's not going to take it. The children will be saddled with the same insecurity that the father had. So he lays up a treasure for himself. And the very last line of that parable is the one that is so powerfully telling. It's not wrong. It's not wrong that this man had treasure. It's not, it's not wrong that this man had a good crop or that he needed to build bigger barns. There's nothing wrong with any of that. What was wrong? The very last sentence in, with, with, within that, he says, this man's problem was not in that he had treasure on earth, but that he was not rich toward God. That's the complete error. And I don't care how much money you have or how much money you don't have, being rich toward God is not dependent on money. Being rich toward God is an entirely different disposition. It's a very different place within our heart to be rich with God. But, and, and, and I can tell you, when you find somebody who is, I'll, I'll just name one. I'll name someone in this, in this auditorium that's rich. Has a rich nature toward God. And I want to tell you, I don't believe it'll shock any of you. Marlene is rich toward God. When she stands and testifies, what does she say? I want to give honor and glory. She may be speaking out of, out of true lack in her life. But she is the woman who is rich toward God. She, has, she knows within her heart the wealth that she holds because of the intimacy that she has with a father who owns the world, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So how do we become rich? It's, the, it's a fair question. It gets asked in America every day. Tony Robbins has made a quite a living telling people how to become rich. And there are hundreds of others who have schemes on how to do this. But how do we get rich toward God? A lot of people who come into my office, especially, especially those who don't come for deliverance but have, have other issues, are, are coming because they know something's not right in their life and the assessment of why something's not right in their life is because they're not receiving anything. There just seems to be no joy. There seems to be no peace. There seems to be no goodness. There seems, it just seems like, why am I not receiving what I'm supposed to be receiving? Why do I not feel what I'm supposed to feel? Why, do, why have I not gotten what I'm supposed to get? And, and, and I'm not sure that they ever truly like my answer. But when... To become rich with God and to, and to remain in the riches of God, you have to draw a conclusion. I want to live within God's design because it's in, it's in his design where I find my true wealth. It's within his design where I can experience and live under the provision that God has given me, the provision of abundance that he's designed for me. 
as my father. So what's, what's truly within God's design? Well, you know, I, I don't have a flip chart in here, so I'm going to have to kind of draw this in the air. And maybe for the sake of those who will be listening on the computer or on CD, it will help. But uh, I'm going to start by, by talking about the reality over here that when you're born, a, a, a child just a few days old, a few hours old, do you have an ability to feed yourself? No. To clean yourself? No. To take care of yourself in any form or fashion? Can you take care of yourself? No. You're 100% a taker. Nobody expects you to be different. You have to take. Because in that simplicity of your life, you have to take from your mom, you take from your dad, you take from others because you have no ability to, 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 to provide for yourself or for anyone else. We should move from this totally dependent state into a, into a position of independence in the middle. Because in that independent middle, it's where we learn our own value. It's where we understand God's true identity that he's spoken over us. So that we can actually find our own moral compass and not just be good because our parents told us to be good. This is a hard process. I can remember with Jay, you know, when you walk through with a young adult waiting and watching for, for them to form that their own moral compass. But they have to walk through it because it has to become theirs. The faith has to become theirs. They can't run on the transferred power of authority or faith of their parents. So they walk through this difficult time and, we, and it excites us when we see their feet finally hit the ground on the other side and there's real traction in their relationship with God. That, in, that, that period of independence in the middle is huge. Why? Because God's design is that I will move from a taker to what over here on the other side? To a giver. So we move from dependence where I take, independence where I grow, so that I can enter into relationships of interdependence, and in that I can be a giver. And so many skip the independence piece, and they, and they wonder why they enter into these relationships still takers. Young men, because so often they, they don't have the relationship that they were supposed to have, they didn't get to take, so they come into relationships with a young lady and they're desperately trying to take what they couldn't find somewhere else. Young women who skip the independence piece come into relationships with no identity and so they become whoever they're told to be. They take on whatever role they're given and they know nothing of their true identity. But we were designed in the design of God to be givers. How do I know that? What's one very obvious verse, the one that gets held in the end zone time and time again at football games? Why do they hold up? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world he gave. That's his nature. He designed us to be givers. How do you, if you want to be rich with God and you, you live within his design, who are you going to be? We're going to be givers. And I tell people when they come into my office, you know, and, and things aren't right, it's, it's rarely what you're not getting that's causing the difficulty. It's the fact that you've never found the place within your life to be the giver that God designed you to be. It has nothing to do with money. By his nature, we will be givers. And the sooner we come to that reality, 
the more joyous our life will become. Nothing wrong with being a taker, but boy, there is tremendous pleasure and goodness in being a giver. And there's no way that we can be rich toward God until we come to that understanding. We're rich with God when we realize that the great pillars of our life are the things that other people can't touch, as we talked about before. And by realizing that our value is God-spoken and not earned by acts or action. I was speaking with someone today, and a doctor, and we got into this conversation. He just made the statement. He said, you know, I, I believe that we're the sum. He used a different word, but he says, I believe that, that we are who our past experiences make us to be. And I just, as kindly as I could, says I have to just respectfully say, there's nothing about that statement that I can agree with. You are not the sum of, the, of, the, of your past. We can't take these series of events and put a plus sign in between them and say, when I add it all up, put an equal sign, there's who I am. Because who I am was spoken by God long before those events ever occurred. And if I don't recognize that my value is what God spoke and not the sum of the equations of the events that have occurred to me, because I may end this by saying how, what a great overcomer I am, and that may be, may be partially true, but that is not my identity and the value that God has given me. That just simply means that by the grace of God, I survived the things that are in my past. I have an identity that God spoke about me long before those events ever occurred. And to understand, if I want to be rich toward God, I begin to, to accept what he says about me and not the, not the result of the events that I have overcome or that have overcome me. You will not be rich toward God until you understand that, that your value was God-spoken and not man-given. I want, that is no small thing. That is huge in, in, in becoming rich toward God. And the last one of, of what I've noticed is by recognizing who we are. Identity in relationship to who he is. Identity. Because we have such a notorious willingness to accept that we are valued by our action instead of being recognized and valued by our identity. It's not the action. It's always the identity. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And I'll end with this same statement. Most of us are afraid of poverty and we should be afraid of wealth. I, someone was in my office yesterday and I, I'm sorry, I don't even remember who it was, but uh, I showed a video of, of Heidi Baker. She's been interviewed on the 700 Club, and the question that she's asked is, she's talking about the relationship with God and the, and the need for the Holy Spirit in the places where she works. And she said, if the Holy Spirit, she, this was her statement, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, we're dead. Why? The, they, don't have a, they don't have a doctor waiting at the, on, on the, around the corner. They don't have medicine sitting on a shelf. If the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, they don't make it. That is in their extreme poverty when they have nothing else. And that's, she asked why. She says, because we don't, don't have anything else. If he's not enough, we don't have something to fall back on. There's no plan B. 
Sadly, in America, we may say God's plan A, but if, if he doesn't come through, I've got plan B. Most of us actually trust plan B first, and when we realize that's not going to work, we might stumble onto plan A. But the reality is that uh, you don't find God in money, you don't find God in your need. You find, in this, according to this scripture, you find God in the, in the reality that my heart is rich toward him. I love him more than anything. We talked about this, about how could Hannah give up Samuel? How could, when, as a little boy, how could, he, how could she take him and hand him over to Eli and, and, and to hand him into God's hands? Because as strange as it sounds, she loved God more than she loved Eli. I mean, more than she loved Samuel. It sounds strange to us. But I want to tell you, that's, that's somebody who by their very nature is rich toward God. 